You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I'm the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I've been practicing exclusively divorce and family law for the past 16 years. Everyone has a story. I interview them. Wake Up Call is an opportunity for you to hear inspiring stories from people who are making hard decisions, overcoming their fears, and living their most authentic life. Greetings. You are listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt, and my guest today is Christopher Anderson. He's the co-founder and CEO of Profit First for Lawyers. He's also the host of the podcast, The Unavailable Hour geared towards helping attorneys learn how to make their businesses work for them and not the other way around, addressing all aspects of owning and running a law firm, such as marketing, sales, technology, social media marketing, metrics, and the seven parts of a business. If you don't know what they are, well, you need to listen to Chris's podcast. (laughs) Chris is also the founding partner at the law firm Anderson Dodson in New York City. And if you're wondering what makes Chris's uh, Chris qualified to be here today and teach Nothing. us how to run a business, well, we're going to get into that. He's already built his own seven-figure, maybe more, maybe we'll talk about that, uh, figure law firm. And thank you so much for being here today, Chris. You bet. Yeah, and a couple times. So uh, Anderson Dodson is uh, my second uh, effort at building my own law firm. And of course, Christina, as you know, I've helped lots and lots of other people grow their law firms past uh, past seven figures and even into eight figures as well. Yes. And we're going to learn how to do that. But I want to I want to go into your business philosophies, but also a little bit about who you are as a person. And having worked with you in the past, I know a little bit about you. Like I know that you have your pilot's license, that you have had a lot of different business ventures and I can't wait to get in all that, all of that. But some of the things I learned just by researching you before this podcast, things that I didn't know, like for instance, fake, that news, you, fake news. Yeah. Right. Well, you'll let me know if it's fake news. And by the way, it's not easy to research somebody named Christopher Anderson on the internet. And now you probably understand why I often use my middle initial Christopher T Anderson when speaking because yeah. Yes. Um. <laughs> yes. It almost sounds like a fake name, but I did find your bio on the Anderson Dodson website and I, it's really clever. Did you write the bio? I, you know, I don't remember. It's been up there for a long time. Uh, it probably should be updated. Um, but so I, I, uh, I could pull it up real quick because I don't remember if I wrote this one or not. Well, it starts out with Christopher is a really smart guy. Well, then I definitely wrote it. No, that, that probably... <laughs> That probably means that my wife wrote it, um, uh, Penn Dodson, who's uh, uh, my partner, obviously, in that business. Um, yeah, she wrote that part. <laughs> well, I, I, I like it. I thought that was funny, though. That struck me when I first read it because it's, it, it's fun to read. It's not like your usual stuffy kind of lawyer bio, like, you know, where are you yeah. in school? And I might have to adopt are. this one. Am I, the one I use is, is much more boring. Maybe you should start using this one. Yeah. And then it says that you can analyze and pick apart a dense legal argument like nobody's business. And then in the next breath, explain the relativity of space and time to an eight-year-old. <laughs> Which tells Which, you when it was written because my eight-year-old is now 13-year-old. Okay. Okay. And I thought, hmm, maybe I should start out by asking Chris to do that, but I don't want to look dumber than an eight-year-old. So we're going to skip that part. Anytime we want to talk about special or general relativity, I'm, I'm happy to as long as we have the caveat that my knowledge uh, is dated now. 
because uh, I stopped learning intensely about that quite a while ago. Well, I'm curious to hear about that uh, sort of hobby because it says that you enjoy quantum mechanics and astrophysics. Also something I had no idea about you. <laughs> Are these things that you read in your spare time? I do. Um, yeah. Uh, and it's like anybody that's interested in it should really follow uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson's um, blog and webpage because he, he has lots of new information all the time. Um, I think it's, you know, if anybody's interested in what makes the world around you tick, I mean, you can't get more basic or more fundamental than understanding the universe. Uh, so that's been a passion of mine for ever. Uh, in high school, I studied at the Hayden Planetarium, I actually studied with Neil deGrasse Tyson once or twice. Um, at, at, uh, in, in undergraduate, I studied with uh, Carl Sagan um, and other, uh, a couple other people. It was, it's always been something that's very fascinating to me. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I, I do tend to follow it. But like I said, my intense learning probably stopped in college and now it's more of just a hobby. So how did you not end up going to college for medicine or something in the sciences? It's a great and fair question. Um, I actually, when I, when I was applying for college, um, I was admitted to several colleges. The, my number one college that, that I thought I wanted to go to was Northwestern University, but I applied specifically for their six years PhD in astrophysics program. Um, so from a high school graduate, six years later, if you completed the program, you would be a PhD in astrophysics. Um, and I got admitted to it. And I have to tell you, at the last second, I got cold feet. And I, at seven, I was 17 years old. I just wasn't sure I was ready to commit to that course of study for the next six years. Um, and it turns out, you know, I, I went to uh, Cornell University, ended up studying physics and astronomy. Um, they didn't have an astrophysics major. Uh, and after a couple of years, decided to switch course and ended up graduating as a government major. So um, my, while it's still a fascinating topic to me, um, my real passion ended up being in, in the structure of government, constitution, uh, the rule of law, and that's where I still am most passionate today. Okay, I can see that. And then when you got out of college, were you, did you become a prosecutor right away? No, no. Um, it's a tortured career. Uh, so, it's varied. You've had a lot of different experience. Yeah. Yeah. So I've, I mean, so that's why I do what I do now, which is helping lawyers run their law firms more like a business and running my law firm uh, like a business. Um, and uh, my new venture uh, that I'm, I'm starting to really uh, pick up steam with is actually uh, building out a business structure that allows uh, consumer-oriented law firms, family law firms, estate planning law firms to service their clients um, more efficiently, um, to really take advantage of what uh, several people out there, including Jack Newton um, of Clio, uh, are noticing and talking about um, and, and really highlighting the lack of product market fit between what lawyers are out there offering and what cons what consumers are wanting. So what we've got is I, I don't know if I'm answering your question. I'm kind of going off on a tangent. Okay, I'm gonna finish it's my. It's a good tangent. Um, what we've got over here is is there's some great lawyers like yourself who have great clients and a great practice, and they're building it and growing it, but they're serving the cream 
of the crop, right? The people who can afford their services and who know they can afford their services and they're providing great service to them. And then you've got legal aid and legal services and some, some sort of safety net practices at the bottom. And then you've got this huge middle that whether it's true or not, don't believe they can afford a lawyer um, and go without legal services in a lot of parts of their lives where they really could use to have the advice and counsel of a qualified attorney. Um, and there's just a, whenever there's a huge product market mismatch as there is there where you basically got, because unlike the part of the sentence I didn't finish was unlike you, the median income for solo practitioners or single shareholders of law firms in the world or in the United States rather is about $49,100. The average is about $78,000 and it hasn't changed. The average hasn't changed in a really long time. Um, and they are the story that these lawyers tell themselves is that there's no business that, and they, they're out there trying to discount services, trying to offer, you know, unbundled services and trying all these different things. But the, the, the story they're telling themselves is that there's no market. Meanwhile, you've got all these consumers out here saying, I can't afford a lawyer. Well, when those two things are happening at the same time, that is a recipe for disruption. That is a recipe for the legal market to change to satisfy that. I don't think it's going to change what you do at all. I don't think it's going to change what legal services does at all, but it's good. There's going to be a match made here in the middle um, that I want to be a part of um, and that I'm helping to, uh, to build a law firm that can satisfy that and also to help other law firms meet that middle either by teaching them or buying them. But I'm going to do it one way or another. Well, I'm interested to hear what ideas you have because I think I've spoken to you in the past about an alternative payment model that my yeah. partner, John Mockler and I have talked about and haven't quite figured out how to implement. And that is some sort of subscription plan or, you know, a monthly flat fee rather than the traditional billable hour that attorneys have been using forever. And to some degree, it works great for lawyers because it makes us money or, or at, if someone pays their bill, but the clients don't like it. And I think most people can't afford that, as you said, and you're right. I think the time is ripe for disruption. So do you have any thoughts about that, about the subscription model or you know, whatever? I have so you many thoughts about that. Oh. Um, and, and I love talking about it. Um, I'm not going to say that I've got it all figured out, but I've got it pretty figured out. Um, and I think it starts with what you just said. Uh, there's a joke I tell when I'm on the road doing public speaking. Um, it's a little off color, so I hope your your podcast can support that. Um, so. But uh, I'll give you a hint as to the answer here in a second. Um, the hint is that this joke went over really well in Salt Lake City and in Tulsa, Oklahoma, crickets, absolute crickets. And the joke is just, it's a very simple one. It's two-liner. Um, there's only two things in this world that people would prefer to pay for by the hour, do you know what they are? <laughs> My mind is going in the gutter. <laughs> and, as it should. And the other one is parking, right? Sex and parking are the only two things people would prefer to pay for by, by the hour, nothing else. Um, and it's not part, 
of our history. It's not part of our tradition as lawyers to charge by the hour. It's not as old as most people think to charge by the hour. And you said it may be in lawyers' interest, but not the client's interest. I say it's not in anybody's interest um, because it makes us do things in a way that has built this lack of product market fit. It is the cause of this lack of product market fit. If you go back to the 1930s and 1940s and look at a legal bill that's sent by a lawyer to their client, it is usually in a paragraph form. It says, um, uh, reviewed case client brought to me about a lawsuit uh, being wagered against them, contacted opposing counsel, worked out a settlement, uh, did this, did that uh, other thing and uh, got a great result for client, um, which resulted in the settlement of this. For services rendered, $500. That's the bill, right? For services rendered, fill in an amount. And I, I mean, I've studied this history. I, I went back in the records. I, I joined a law firm um, when I first uh, went into private practice um, that had been in practice for quite some time and found in the in the archives just like little little cards where the lawyers and the bar, uh, the local bar, agreed on what a divorce with children was, agreed on what a divorce uh, drunk driving case was, agreed on what a, an estate plan was. And they had this rate card that all the lawyers had. So all the lawyers had the same prices. I'm not saying that's the right way either. Yeah. But it was the, the point was that it was not by the hour. It was not an hourly agreement. It was what this thing is worth. Um, what happened is that several law firms who did businesses at first with insurance companies and then with major corporations came across some bean counters that said, how do we value this? How do we know we got what we paid for? And the only metric that they could come up with was send us a bill that says how long you worked on it. Send us a bill with hours. And that became, that infected the practice of law. It does all sorts of weird things. Uh, you, you probably, because uh, you, you have a family law practice, so you haven't done much work against insurance companies. Yeah. If you ever do, what you'll find is that depositions always go seven hours. Always. Because the defense lawyer, it's the only way they can get paid by the insurance companies to bill them the hours and depositions are allowed to go seven hours. So they do. Um, and it's Her just- rates are usually lower, right? Like if I charge 425 an hour, but I wouldn't be able to do that if I was doing insurance defense. Right. They get, they're getting squeezed by the hour. They're getting squeezed by the dollar amount. And yeah, it's this whole bean counter mentality, but it's infected our whole business. Family lawyers were never supposed to charge by the hour. Um, one of my guiding philosophies in all business, I, you know, as you, as you mentioned, I mean, since college, I have owned an airplane, uh, repair and maintenance business. Um, I've owned a law firm. Um, I've, I don't know what other businesses I've been in. I've well, been working as a, as a consultant and coach with law firms across the country, public speaker, blah, 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 blah. Lots of different businesses that I've been involved in. I love enterprise. Um, I love entrepreneurship. But one of the guiding principles I've always had in anything that I've done is I will not do business with you, Christina, unless I know and have convinced myself that you will make a profit working with me. That in some way, I will deliver more value to you than you pay me, whether it be in money or something else. And that I can also 
provide that service to you at a cost less than what you pay me. So I make a profit. We both have to profit. That's how we will continue to do business together. Because I don't want I don't want to meet, you know, just do one thing for you. I want to work with you and do more things for you. And that's been true in all my businesses. The charging by the hour abrogates that entire principle. Because, you know, a family, I ran a family law business too, so I keep talking about it. But, um, you know, family law client comes to you and asks you, how much is this going to cost? And you don't ever have an answer. Mm -hmm. Right. My answer to them, I don't know what yours is. My answer to them was always, well, let me tell you something unfortunate about family law. Um, It will cost as much as the side who wants to spend the most money. And it will take as long as the side who wants to go slowest um, because that's who controls. I, you know, if they want to file motion after motion after motion, I can't not respond. I can't prejudice your case. So I'm going to have to respond. And this case is going to get expensive. If you guys can figure out how to work together, this case won't be so expensive. But it's not, I can't tell you ahead of time because I don't know you and I certainly don't know your spouse. Um, but that's true in business litigation. It's true in, in, in many other areas. And what silliness it is, if we all, if all family lawyers stop charging by the hour, first of all, all that nonsense of the scorched earth and all those motions would stop because there would be an incentive for efficiency. There'd be an incentive to get the case done while still meeting our obligation to our clients to zealously um, advocate for their position. Um, Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. So, you know, and so back to the profit question. So then if you have that profit-oriented thinking, what you should be constantly thinking about is how valuable is this case to you, my client? You know, you've been married for three years. There's no kids, low assets. This case, the the, the rare, the... I always told my clients, like, you're over here and your spouse is over here. In the hundreds of cases I've done, let me tell you, the distance between the possible results that a court's going to give you are between here and here. And you can spend thousands of dollars moving the needle that much. Is it worth it? You know, and not everybody's rational. I'll tell you, I I once did a hearing, an entire hearing. That was basically, there were a couple other issues, but the most pressure, the most important issue in was who gets the George Foreman grill. This is not a joke. This is real. Who gets the George Foreman grill, which was a very fancy George Foreman grill. I it was a hundred dollars, $150. I forget. And I offered, I took out my checkbook at the beginning of the hearing. I said, tell you what, I'm going to make about eight, $900 today doing this. I will write a check right now for $150 to whoever was willing to give up the George Foreman grill. I will pay you for the George Foreman grill. Now you get my money and the other person gets the grill. You guys don't have to agree at all. Who wants it? No. Pay me $900, pay the other lawyer $900. We're going to have a hearing and that's what we did. I had a similar situation with a crock pot. Actually, it was a case with my partner, John Mocklinger, and that's was how we met. Oh, wow. Crock pot case that yeah. we still talk about. So I I get it. You know, I hear you when you talk about this need to have some other way to build people. But when I try to sell it to my clients, and maybe it's something with my salesmanship, they don't want it. I And I have found that, and I'll tell you what I offer them. I offer them our $5,000 retainer to bill hourly. 
when it gets down to 50%, they have to replenish it, bring it back up to five, or they can pay a $2,000 a month flat fee. So they know what it is every month. There's, it's predictable. They can budget for it. And I, I, you know, I think potentially we'd be losing money on some months. You will. So but can, can I ask yeah. you a few questions about yeah. it? I mean, yeah. I'm going to ask you questions about your business. I don't know if you want to do that on the podcast, but uh, is that okay? Yeah, that's okay. Okay. So $2,000, what's your, what's, to the best of your knowledge, what's your average case value? How much? We've come up with about $15,000. $15,000. How long is your average case from start to finish? The average divorce probably takes about a year. A year. So 15000 is your average case value, but you're telling your clients you want them to pay 24000 on a subscription basis. Well, that's average, but yeah. if they but if they don't take a year, because not all of them take a year. I know, but you said average. They take so, less. But if you run the averages, you're actually charging them a premium to go to the subscription model. That's my the only suggestion I'm having here is that maybe we you should revisit if they're the balking, you should revisit the number. And yeah. here's another tidbit that I think works. Um, the minute the case gets put down for trial. Not when the trial starts, the minute the case gets put down for trial, that means mediation has failed, arbitration has failed, whatever other alternative dispute resolution you had has failed and you're doing discovery and you're moving towards trial, um, double it. As soon as this case gets put down for trial, your monthly amount doubles. That way you can cover yourself for the outliers. Um, and you'll, because once it's put down for trial, as you know, several months will pass before it goes to trial, you'll be able to build up a trial kitty um, that, uh, that, and you'll be incentivizing them to settle because it just started getting a lot more expensive. I like that. And you know, when I talk about this issue with other attorneys, they always have the same reaction, but we're going to lose money because they're thinking, well, I'm going to do all this work and they're going to end up paying me less than they would have if I had just billed them hourly. And then my response is always, but how much time are you spending on collections right now? And what's your collection rate? And yeah, and then people lie. You know what? The first thing is people, I always say they lie. They don't, they don't know. They don't know their collection rate. They don't like every time, Christina, that I go into a business, a law firm that's hurting, that's in trouble. The first thing I look at is their AR and it's always a nightmare. Um, You know, often finding more than one year's worth of revenue in accounts receivable. Um, Like, but they don't know. They bill. And so they think, oh, I'm billing this much. I'm, you know, I would lose so much money. Well, you will lose all this fake money that you don't have because it's an accounts receivable. Um, as opposed to, <laughs> yeah. you know, oh, the client missed their payment. And I'd say, you know, with, with a lot of these, screw monthly, have them pay every two weeks. Um, That's what we do. Yeah. And that way, boom, they miss one. You're calling them. Boom, they miss two. You're out. And, 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 you know, your, your, your AR will be so low because you're only out a one month's worth of payments rather than a chunk, a chunk of work. Um, Wait, and I just, so you know, we have played around with the numbers. I mean, I, I think we do have someone paying us 1500 a month. Um, We're not quite sure what the number should be. 
because you, you will lose money if you get that person that wants you to file a motion every month and it wants you to send a letter every single day and wants you to dep- depose the entire neighborhood. You will lose money on those people. But it's the other people that are a little easier. Maybe they end up paying a little more than they otherwise would have. So I'm not sure how to recognize They might, but they've that. got certainty. And you know what? At the end of the day, like people that sell legal services sell the wrong stuff. I mean, all you have to do to know that that's true is go to a bunch of law firm websites. And the law firm websites talk about the lawyers and their awards and what schools they went to. And um, they always have the same boilerplate language, like we'll zealously advocate for you and I don't know, stuff about the lawyers. Yes. How great they are. Yeah. And what the client, first of all, in family law, in estate planning, in criminal law, in all these consumer-facing practices, bankruptcy, consumer bankruptcy, they have no idea how to hire a lawyer. Like we teach them how to hire us. Everything they know about hiring a lawyer, they learn from us. And we teach them terribly because we teach them that all that stuff's important and it's not. What's important is what we can do for them. What's important is the result that we can get for them. And the value of that is based on what it is worth to them. And so the subscription model puts them more in control because they can then decide what it's worth. And if they can drag it out, it'll be cost a lot more. Or they can not drag it out and it won't. Um, and you have, yeah, like you said, you have the data to figure out what number will work. And let's face it, if you've got four lawyers and their average caseload is 40 cases, I'm making numbers up, not saying that should be, please, everybody that's listening to this, like that's not a benchmark. I'm not saying that's how many cases you should have. Um, It differs, different firms, different ratios. I'm just making up a number. So let's say, but let's say the number's 40 and you got, you know, two paralegals per lawyer or whatever, then you know what your cost structure is. And if they can carry 40, you know what you want your profit margin to be. Now, you know, your price. I mean, it's just that simple. And then you test that price against the market. Is that if, if you deliver it at that price, is that, does that help you allow your clients to make a profit, right? Because, I mean, think about it like, like a restaurant. What's, what's great? Well, that doesn't matter. Your, your audience is national. So uh, let's pick a, pick a great restaurant that we all love. Um, I think Capital Grill is a good chain, isn't it? Yeah, uh, let's not go to a chain. Let's go to something like way above. So Masa, we go to Masa. Masa in New York City is probably closed right now, but uh, Masa is a fantastic Japanese restaurant. You have to book it months and months ahead of time. Uh, I think the table sits 18 and one serving per night. Um, And it's served by Masa-san. And there's no menu. Uh, You can specify if you've got certain allergies or stuff you hate. But other than that, you're getting what Masasan serves and you pay the price. Um, last time I checked, I think it was $400 per person. Um, it's an experience. It is the value of it is that it's a, it's a once in a lifetime experience or maybe twice in a lifetime. But I say it's an unusual experience that you're paying for the ambience, you're paying for the skill of this chef, you're paying for uh, the, 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 exquisite and different kind of food you're going to eat. Um, and you make a profit because it's worth way more than $400 to you to have that experience. That's how it's priced. Now, 
Masa knows his rent. He knows his server's costs. He knows his ingredients costs. He knows, he knows what it takes to put that plate in front of you. And he makes sure that he can do that for a lot less than $400 so that he makes a profit and I make a profit. That's what we need to be doing with our clients and making sure that they can make a profit, we can make a profit. But within that, giving it to them in a model that puts them in control. That's so we ask them their price. What's isn't there a website that does that with airfare? Is it Priceline? Yeah, Priceline. One of those. <laughs> don't, yes, but so and you were talking about being a good salesperson, right? The answer is they don't know their price. Like we can't ask them their price. They don't know. Um, well, and you're right because sometimes they'll just say, "My bill was too much," and I will say, "Well, how much do you think it should be?" And they never have an answer. No, no. But what you should be hearing when they say that is you did not, Christina, you or your business, your firm failed to communicate the value you delivered to me. Yes, That's the word you should be hearing. Mm-hmm. It's not that the bill was too high. It's that they didn't, they don't understand the value. Um, so you should be asking yourself, what should we be doing to communicate value? Um, I remember, you know, I, I've been practicing a little while. Uh, and back when I started my first private practice, I got a book by a guy named Jay Foonberg, who was sort of like the guru at the time of how to start a new law firm. He's still publishing this book, by the way, uh, through it's through American Bar Association. Um, and one of the things that I took from the book was he said, paper your clients. And what he meant by that was, Everything, every correspondence that goes out between you and opposing counsel, between you and um, a third party, subpoenas, routine correspondence with the court about dates, copy it all to them. They, they're getting an envelope from me every day. Is it important? Is it meaningful? No, it's not. But their, their opinion is, damn, Anderson's working. Um, You know, that firm is cranking it out, getting it done, not sitting back. They're advocating for me. They're doing something almost every day. The bill comes. They're like, yeah, of course there's a bill. Uh, They've been working as opposed to most lawyers. Their clients don't hear from them until like at various milestones in the case. But then a month or two months or three months will go by with silence. And then in the middle of all this silence comes a bill. That's the only communication they got. And then you wonder why, you know, people wonder why they, they complain about their bill. Well, because they, they don't know what we do. They don't, they don't, I mean, the, what the public thinks we do versus what we actually do is there's no, there's almost no core correspondence between the two things. It's, it's phenomenal because we don't explain it. Um, and we don't, and I'm not saying just papering them will, will communicate the value. Um, you know, a letter every month or twice a month saying, here's what's happened in your case. I just want to let you know how we're moving forward. Um, a occasional phone call, just like, Hey, how are things going? Not telling them here's what's going on in your case. We filed a motion to do this and uh, we filed uh, discovery demands and, uh, and requests for admission. And uh, we got some responses back and we typed those on our Olivetti typewriter. I mean, they don't care. The sausage factory. Yeah. Tell them what happened. Tell them why their life is getting better or more certain because that's what we sell. We don't sell motions. We don't sell trials. We don't sell cross-examinations. We don't sell depositions. We don't sell contracts. We don't sell whatever else we do. 
we sell in criminal law, in family law, we in bankruptcy law, we sell an increase in certainty or a decrease in uncertainty. We sell peace of mind. We sell you back up your truck, dump truck full of problems and dump them into my backyard and they're not in your backyard anymore. Um, we sell better sleep. That's what we sell. And we have to keep communicating that that's happening for them. Yeah. And then, I have to say, I've been, a, I've been a client recently for a few attorneys for personal things. And so I had the experience of being a client. And I have to say, even being, you know, big, fancy, sophisticated lawyer, when you're the client, it really doesn't matter. Your lawyer brain kind of turns off for the most part and you're focused on the problem that you have yeah. and what it is that you're asking them to help you with. And I did learn from that experience that when they go into lawyer mode and they start using all the lawyer lingo, even though I'm a lawyer, I don't care. I don't want to hear it. I want to know what is the outcome going to be. Yeah. Now, and even if you can't predict what is the outcome going to be, how is this going to affect my life? And am I going to be okay? That's really all I want to know. I don't care how you do it. Just do it. Yeah. So I learned a lot from that experience, just being a client. And you're absolutely right. And I appreciate all movie, this. I don't remember the name of the movie, but there's some movie where a doctor ends up going to the hospital and like being a patient for a, a while. And it's like, I think that served him well. And I think it would serve a lot of lawyers well to, to experience what you've experienced because when it's your problem, yeah, all you care about is I, Yeah, I think everyone should have the experience of being a client. Every lawyer should do that. And especially if you have any kind of deadlines or court appearances or anything like that, because what would happen to me is I wouldn't, I'd call my attorney, maybe I wouldn't get a phone call right away. And that was difficult. Like, did they forget about me? Should I call them again? Am I bothering them? why haven't they called me to explain what, you know, these papers are about? I don't know what these are about. Yeah. Are they just assuming that I know what they're, they're about because I'm a lawyer? So all that stress that you feel, I really started to think, my God, is, do my clients experience this where I am? And the answer is, of course. <laughs> yes, of course, right? Yeah. So I want, I really appreciate the free coaching session. I hope my, my intention with that was really for everybody that's listening, right? Not just, not just yeah. you. It's applicable to you. Great. But you know, I, I, I guessed anyway that you were asking these questions because your, your listeners are interested in some of this. Definitely. Yeah. And I appreciate all that advice. Um, it's helpful to me and I'm sure plenty of the people that listen, my fellow attorneys, yeah. but I want to back up a little bit. You know, you weren't born with all this knowledge, Christopher. When you started your first business, which I assume was a law firm, you can tell me if I'm wrong. How, no, how no. did you learn all this? Tell me about that. Like, how did you learn all of this? Did you make a lot of mistakes? Yes. My first business was a uh, lawn mowing business and a snow blowing business. Um, I started that when I was 14, 15. Um, my second business was a pool cleaning business. Um, I had a short time uh, illegal um, beer uh, uh, keg party business um, when I was myself 16 years old. Um, uh, I had during college, I had a computer consulting business. 
Um, you really are an entrepreneur. Yeah, during law school, I worked for Apple. Um, but but basically, as an entrepreneur, um, my job was to put Apple computers on professors' desks and get them to buy real ones. Um, and I got paid by success. After law school, actually, um, my first I first had a business um, where we built legal uh, legal case management software for insurance companies. Um, and uh, then uh, DA's office, then my law firm. So a lot of stuff before then. Oh, oh and yeah, and uh, a little bit of a, a venture into uh, into the uh, dot-com boom in a, in a publicly traded company. And so I think it's fair to say that, yeah, I picked up bits and pieces along the way. Um, and yes, I've made lots of mistakes. I've also over the years invested fairly significantly in other people who've been where I want to go. Um, so coaches, people who can help me see my own blind spots better than I can, um, overcome my own blocks, figure out where I stop so I don't stop there anymore. Um, help me guide me towards learnings that help me grow as a, as a business person, but grow as a person as well. I think the combination of the two, yeah, I wasn't born with any of this. I mean, I've lost everything more than once. Um, I've, I've built really successful companies more than once. Um, and uh, I learned more from the failures than the successes. I'll tell you that much. Um, and, uh, and each, each stop along the way, you know, my time at, at, I mean, I worked for a $2 billion company, LexisNexis, uh, for a few years. Um, you know, my first DA's office was an office of 450 people. Every step of the way, there's really great business acumen that you can pick up and then apply elsewhere. And so this combination of being able to apply all these businesses and business learnings to the business of law, I mean, that's my Twitter handle, right? Law firm business at law firm business. Um, is, I think it's a great combination. I really love, I love the business of law. I love the practice of law. I love the rule of law and being able to bring business knowledge to that. I, I, it's just something that's built up over the years. I'm surprised. How did you end up working for the prosecutor's office? How did you, when you obviously had this entrepreneurial spirit, how did you end up being a public servant? Yeah, um, that's a really interesting story. When I went into law school, I thought I would practice business law. That's, that's what I thought I would do. And um, I, in my third year, uh, I was invited to become a, uh, to, to I, I wanted to learn a little bit about trial law. And so I looked at it different ways and there was a clinic um, where you could practice as a third year law student and actually try cases with the local prosecutor's office. Um, and so that sounded cool. Um, and so I did that as part of my third year and I just fell in love with that, with the trial practice, with the helping people, with the quasi judicial nature of the job, um, with the rule of law. Um, and when, uh, when I graduated, I actually didn't do that. Uh, cause I was, uh, had a couple of friends who were working for com. Um, this was in the, in the mid nineties and it just, uh, sounded like a really exciting opportunity. So I started a law firm, uh, software business with them, um, and, uh, would ended up joining the DA's office a few, few years later when that, um, kind of blew up, uh, as the dot-com bubble. Um, and, uh, and went with the DA's office. Um, and why a public servant as far as not an entrepreneur? Well, the funny thing is, is I was an entrepreneur in that office. 
Um, and for me, the entrepreneurial thing, even though like with the dot com, I was hoping to make, I went in there thinking there'd be a seven to eight figure payday. Um, there wasn't uh, that one time around. The next time around did better. Uh, but it wasn't about the money. It was about the amount of change. Um, and so after that, I got invited to be a New York City prosecutor. And I just figured that I would be able to make a difference. Um, but inside that office, I couldn't turn off that entrepreneurial spirit either. So I remember one day, the district attorney. So, you know, there's, there's an office of 435 people, but there's one guy who's the elected guy. Um, his name was Rob Johnson. Uh, I had just been moved um, to a new bureau. And, and he came in to check on me, which I thought was really sweet of him. And he's like, Anderson, what's that on your desk? And I was like, uh, that's a computer. You've seen them before. And just a short story, like, there were no computers. So this is yeah, 1995, no computers in the office. Um, when you needed a motion, there's this big binder, the motion book. And you'd, be, you'd write down on a piece of paper, um, paragraph A1, B17, C8. Oh, wow. Um, and then underneath you like the end in C8, change these words to these words. And then here's like my special stuff. And then you'd send that to the typing pool. And three days later, you'd get back your motion and you'd make your edits on it and send it back in three. Like it would be two weeks to get a motion done um, because yeah, you didn't have a computer. So he comes to my office, he's like, what's that? I say, that's a computer. He's like, Why do you have a computer? Like, cause it takes eight days to get a motion finished. And I move my cases faster now. Um, I, I'm getting discovery out. I'm getting motion practice done. I'm, I'm moving my cases before a lot of people even have their, uh, you know, their first uh, discovery disclosures done. Um, and that keeps my case load down and makes me a happy boy. Um, so I figured out how to do that and I bought a computer. And he's like, get that off your desk. And I was like, really? He's like, yeah, I love that. I'm buying you a computer. Get that off. Can you get money back for that? Like he's, he's like, <laughs> and then and I want you to like teach other people about this because we got to, we got to do better. And, and so, but you know, it's that sort of entrepreneurial thing always. Um, it's just entrepreneurship can exist. I, in my opinion, it, it's not, I do this to build a business. I do this to build money. Um, it's, I do this to help people. I do this to satisfy my professional itch. Um, to get something done. Um, entrepreneurship is solving problems. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree with that. So you eventually left the prosecutor's office and then where'd yeah. you go from there? Um, I left the prosecutor's office. Uh, I left the first one to go back to a, uh, to, to one of the dot-com companies that I'd been with before and take a second swing at it. Um, that's when we got acquired by a uh, uh, publicly traded company. And that was, that was a fantastic learning experience. Um, and uh, my investment paid off better that time than uh, the first time. Um, and I actually went back to a, a prosecutor's office for a little bit just to get introduced because my next gig, I was tired at some point of writing legal software um, and selling legal software and convincing lawyers that this will make their lives better. And I wanted to go out there and show them. Um, and you know, right, done convincing people, I'm just going to go use it myself and show you. Uh, and so I wanted to go into private practice. I took another DA job for a short period of time to kind of get to know a community. Um, and then that's when I opened my own firm and then got invited to be a partner, um, in another firm within a few months, um, and was off to the races in that. Uh, and that's, yeah, that's how I finally got into into 
private was, practice. Was that Anderson Dodson or? No, it wasn't. That was a law firm in Georgia. Um, the the, pre, uh, the pre, uh, predecessor to Anderson Dodson um, and was with them for a number of years. Uh, like I said, I was invited to be a partner uh, and was with them for a number of years until uh, my business bug came calling again. And uh, LexisNexis, um, we used a software from LexisNexis called Time Matters, which is a case management software that they built, which was remarkably similar to the case management software I built. Um, but it was better, I think, than the one I'd built. And, uh, but it was getting old and creaky and it had problems. And I was a pain in the ass. I called them, I wrote them, but not complaining, saying, you know, listen, I've written software, I've done software like this. If you did this this way, it would be so much better. And, you know, it, this is really not working for us. But if you did this, that might work not just for us, but for a lot of other people. And, you know, oh, I informally talked to 100 lawyers about this. And here's what I learned that, you know, that they want in this software. And so one thing led to another. I became vocal. They invited me to speak to their developers a couple of times. Um, they invited me at one point to come speak to their sales conference, which <laughs> it was the most bizarre experience I've ever had. I, you know, they said, hey, will you come speak to our sales uh, group? I'm like, yeah, sure. I'll be happy to. Um, same stuff I've been talking about with everybody. Yeah, we'll just talk about that. And uh, I went down. And it was in Orlando. I don't remember the hotel, but uh, we went like they're walking me to the, to the hall and we walk, we come, come down the elevator and walk down a normal hotel hallway. And then it gets bigger and then it gets bigger and then it gets bigger. And like these hallways are now, you know, you could put, you could drive two cars back and forth next to each other. Um, and finally we go in the, the conference hall and holy shit, there's like 3000 people in there. I had never spoken to a group that size ever before in my life. And I like, like, and it was, you know, totally produced like a beautiful stage with graphics and furniture and lights and, and it freaked me out, but I ended up talking to their, I didn't realize their sales team was that big. Um, but, but they are, and that led to them inviting me to be on a, um, steering committee kind of thing um, on a brand new software that they were building. Um, and uh, I was pretty vocal on that and really vocal with my ideas and how to, how to validate them. And then one day the leader of that software quit um, to go do something else. And they asked me if I would lead the project. And that's how I ended up at LexisNexis. So I guess I'm wondering, it's how you went, you've done different things. You did the prosecutor's office, you did some dot-com stuff. I want to ask you how you ended up in Georgia, but then you eventually found your way back to owning a law firm. So having a, running a law firm, I guess you were managing it. Yeah. Um, so truth be told, um, with the, the second law firm with Anderson Dodson, um, Dodson, who happens to be my wife, uh, runs the law firm. She's, she's built the law firm. She runs the law firm. Um, she litigates in the law firm. I have been a help. Um, I have been a consultant. I've been a coach, uh, for her, uh, and, um, helped to imagine some systems and put things into place, model, do the business modeling, help with the marketing and then a few things along the way. Um, the, you know, I want to give credit where credit's due. She's built the thing. 
um, as I was, as I've been busy with, uh, started at when I, when I started with, uh, how to manage a small law firm. So I've been busy helping, you know, a few hundred other law firms grow their businesses. Um, and, uh, meanwhile, also helping her, uh, to grow Anderson Dodson. So if it wasn't for her and that relationship, do you think you would own a law firm now? Right now? No, I wouldn't have had time, um, to, to build it to where it is now. But it's certainly in a great place. It's in a fantastic place now for the, this new project that uh, we're both heading out on to uh, really help revision. Because Anderson Dotson right now is primarily a wage and hour plaintiff's wage and hour practice. That's what it does. It's uh, so it's consumer oriented, but um, to help workers get paid the wages they should have been paid in the first place. That's what we do. Um, but we're now moving into a whole new area where we're building consumer facing practice. Uh, that is going to really help to fill in that product market fit and reimagining it as a firm, as not a law firm. I mean, it's not a law firm. Like consumer-oriented firms should not be law firms. It is a business. It's a business. One of the things we do is practice law. In a family law firm, it should be like the last resort, what we do. Um, what we really, what what a family law, what is a family law firm really supposed to do? It's supposed to reduce uncertainty and help people resolve conflicts, the most conflicts in the most important relationships in their lives. The law is like the worst tool for that. Oh yeah. It's totally. You know, know, and so there've been attempts like there's collab, which I totally respect. I think collaborative law is fantastic, but again, it's up here, right? It's expensive. It may be less expensive than full-on litigation and it may more holistically solve more problems in a way where people can move on with their lives more productively i think all that's true but it's still up here there's all this here and what people are looking for is conflict resolution is a way to resolve disruption in the most important relationships in their lives and empower be feel empowered to make decisions for themselves like I've always, even when I was practicing before, when I had a family law practice, that was really a more traditional family law practice. I used to tell my clients, like, the worst outcome for you is for some judge to decide your custody arrangements, for some judge to decide what your child support payments should be, for some judge to decide um, you know, what your parenting time will be, for some judge to, to decide what your division of assets will be, for some judge to decide what your, how you're going to divide up the, the retirement accounts. Like, you don't want a judge who is going to, if you're lucky, spend two or three hours thinking about your case to decide the rest of your life. Like the best yeah, people to do that are you and your oh. spouse. Um, if we can find a way to bring you guys together and act rationally. Well, I think the problem too, I think that depends on how their attorney has coached them and what expectations the attorney has set them up for. Because a lot of people treat a divorce like it's a competition to, for something to be won. Yeah. Which means if there's a winner, there's a loser. And I, I'm going to fight until I'm the winner. And yeah. I think that does come from the way that the attorneys handle the case. And unfortunately, there has to be this thing called collaborative law to, to set itself apart from the traditional litigation model because a lot of attorneys who do litigation aren't collaborating. If they were collaborating, you wouldn't need to have this thing called collaborative law. Yeah. So um, I think there's a better way. And I think law is a, listen, not every dispute is going to get resolved. There is a place for an arbiter. 
there is a place for knowing that there is someone who's going to be there to make the decisions if we really can't. But it's the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. And there's and there's so much we don't do. And, and it, like I'm talking about family law again because it's, I know it um, well. But this is true in criminal. This is true in bankruptcy. This is true in estate planning. This is true in really in a lot of like a lot of business law isn't really B2B. It's, it, it's, you know, when you're dealing with small business and small business owners, it's, I used to say, I, my, my practice, I had personally, I had some family law clients and business law clients. And I used to say, I've got some clients who will litigate to the end of the earth over minor issues and spend ridiculous amounts of money to solve tiny problems. And the other one's family law. Um, because the <laughs> business, I mean, people think, family, like you were talking about how people get ridiculous in, in, in divorce cases. Oh yeah. my God. Go to a small business dispute that gets itself into litigation. These like well, kind of a divorce, right? It's worse because their egos are even more into it. Um, and the a lot of what I've just been talking about applies there equally. Um, and we've just lost because we're serving up here and lawyers are billing by the hour. We've lost the whole middle of being problem solvers, dispute resolvers. But to me, and the reason that I'm really passionate about this is, listen, product market fit, blah, blah, blah. You know, I could start Uber or another Uber if that's really what my my passion is. It's not. My passion is that I believe that even with all the troubles we're having at the moment, that the United States is a fantastic place to live, that we are a country of laws and we are based on the rule of law. And I think we actually this year have started to see what happens when a large group of people feel that they don't have access to justice. When they, when a large group of people feel like, yeah, there's a court system, there's police, there's family court, there's a state, there's all this stuff, but it's not for me. I can't afford to play in that court. And there's no other court. And eventually I feel like there's no fair shake. And if eventually enough people like feel that there's no fair shake, civilization starts to get a little tenuous and we lose the magic that is this country. We lose this faith that it's a free country. We lose this faith that there, that there is law and the rule of law holds. And when, if we really break with that faith, we got problems. And I believe that in figuring out a way to make that product market fit happen and bring the law back to the people, give people real tools that involve the law and other tools to resolve disputes in a way that is, I don't want to reuse the word collaborative, that is, that allows us to move forward with relationships past the dispute. Cooperative. Cooperative. Um, if we, if we can do that, we get to preserve what we've got. Um, and, uh, if we don't, we don't. And I, you know, I, I'm trying to remember the Benjamin Franklin quote, but if uh, uh, you formed a democracy or a republic, I think, I think the, the response is a republic if we can keep it, right? Um, I just butchered that. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> we'll have to look it up and yeah. uh, we'll make it right. I, so can you share with me what you're thinking in terms of an alternative pay arrangement? Besides well, I agree with you. It's, I think it's a subscription. Um, and I think there's some tweaks to it depending on what practice area. Um, 
I think, you know, like I said, if it's going to trial, I think there's a tweak there. Um, I think there can be tiers based on the complexity, uh, the, you know, the inception, the complexity at inception of the case um, and the litigiousness. There could be a litigiousness factor. Which you might I, not know until you, well, you don't know until the case gets going. Yeah. I mean, I, and you know, there are other tweaks. Like I used to have a judge, I'll just call it judge X. Cause I don't want to like, he's still alive, I think. But I used to have a judge X um, surcharge um, because everything that went before judge X cost more. So, you know, it goes before Judge X, my subscription price just went up by $300 or whatever. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you can figure these things out based on, I mean, I, I can geek out here if you want, but, um, you know, if you've been Do you want to geek out, Chris? If you've been practicing for any length of time, you can look back at the cases and hopefully if you've been tracking time, if you haven't, you need to start tracking time. I don't care if you bill by the hour or not, by the way. I advocate for everybody to stop billing by the hour, except for, you know, those who sell pleasure and uh, parking, <laughs> parking lots. Parking, you mean. <laughs> and parking, the two Ps. Um, everybody else needs to stop billing by the hour, but they still need to track time because we need to understand the inputs. We need to understand the cost of providing the services. But once we do that, we also understand a lot more about our business. So like, for instance, some family law firms um, that I've studied, work really well with a one lawyer, two paralegals, one legal assistant model. I call the diamond pod. But some family law firms have two lawyers, one paralegal, two legal assistants. Um, and some have two lawyers, one paralegal, one legal assistant. So that is the, the X, that's the, yeah, the, 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 the diamond, the X, and the Y models of family law firms. Um, and none of them is right and none of them is wrong. Um, if you're a high touch boutique, really high end clients, you might have more lawyers because you want, you know, to the, you might have that Y model. Um, if you are, you know, serving middle, middle income and trying to do things more efficiently, you might have the, the, uh, the diamond model where the paralegals are doing most of the work. Um, and also it could be jurisdiction. Some jurisdictions just have you in court a lot more and some don't. Um, and that's all changing. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but, you know, looking back, a lot of people don't know what their ratio is and they're overstaffed or understaffed. They've got some people on their team who are pulling their hair out busy and some people on their team who don't need to be busy. I mean, let's face it, you know, Parkinson's law, they're going to look busy because we will, we will grow the work to fit the time we allotted. But, if they really studied what they were doing, they'd find that they're in the diamond, the Y or the X, and they will build their firm accordingly. Well, we only can learn that by tracking time. Um, and so we know what to charge. We know what to uh, what our cost structure is. We know what our profits are going to be. We know how to staff. And once you know that, you also know how many cases is a good number for your firm and how many cases is a bad number for your firm. So for instance, if you're, let's say we go back to the diamond. If one lawyer, two paralegals, and one uh, uh, assistant can handle 60 cases at a time. Again, I'm not advocating that 60 is the right number. 60 cases at a time. Well, 60 is a great number because that means that everybody's busy, 100% busy. 120 cases is great because now you've got two pods that are 100% busy. But you might find that there are some places like 90 cases or 80 cases or 110 cases that 
make the profitability in your law firm go down because you're still carrying a team necessary to serve this, but now you're not keeping everybody busy. There's, there's misfiring. It's like driving a car with one cylinder only firing every four times. It's just, it's not efficient. There's gasoline pouring out of the tailpipe. Um, you can only know these things by studying your business, by knowing the numbers, by tracking the time and then making a plan your whole business plan should then be oriented around that. Your marketing plan, your business plan should be oriented around staying at a diamond as long as possible and then making a big push to go to two diamonds, but not spending much time between one and two diamonds because that's less profitable. Um, knowing these numbers allows you to know that, knows, allows you to know how to charge the, the, what your subscription-based fee would be if you're going to go to a flat fee model. And that's the other model, of course. We didn't really talk about just flat fee. Just, hey, yeah. you know, my average case value is $12,000. Pay me $12,000 <laughs> up front. Yeah, that's another no, valid model. About that. Yeah. yeah, but then you get the you'll get the people that will say, "Well, if that would is if that's what I would pay over the course of a year, why should I pay that if I get divorced in a couple of months?" And I I always feel like my answer is, if I could actually get you divorced in a couple of months, you would not be willing to pay fifteen thousand dollars for that, or you know whatever the number is. I, I always I, that was a frequent conversation, and again, that's what you're hearing there is you didn't I haven't yet aligned the value of that with my thinking. I'm still thinking I'm paying for your time. Yeah. So part of it is educating the public because they all watch a lot of television. So that's why they all want their day in court because they've watched Law and Order and all those shows where you get your day in court and your lawyer has that one piece of evidence that their private detective oh, found. <laughs> you know, it's not like that. It's super boring and, and you're not, no one's going to leave happy. But yeah. preaching like, to the choir. Yeah, it's like the story of, uh, of the car mechanic. Guy drives, his car is just like belching smoke and barely driving. He drives it into the mechanic shop. <clears throat> mechanic says, yeah, pop the hood open. And uh, you know, start it back up. And mechanic takes a big hammer and it's like, poof, and bangs it. And the car starts running great. And the guy's like, that's amazing. Thank you so much. Um, you know, just give me your bill. And the guy gives him a bill for $500. It's like $500. Like you, you, you opened the hood and like spent three minutes weaving a hammer around it and hit it once. Like you're five minutes into this thing. What's $500. Oh, he said, Oh no, no, you have to read the bill more carefully. It's time labor $5 knowing where to hit the engine $495. Right. And like, there, I mean, there is in all of us a part of us that would be more satisfied if we left the car there for a few days and got it back and it was fixed and we'd be happy to pay the $500. But if we, when we see that it didn't take much effort, we're not willing. But that's, again, a lack of communication about value. And I would have the same conversation that you're talking about. I'd be like, and I would have it up front. And I would say, listen, tell me now. If you want me to drag this out and keep you uncertain for longer and keep you from being able to move on with your life for you know nine to 12 months, um, let me know now because it's going to be the same price whether I resolve this in 30 days or in 12 months. And if you're going to be upset with having it settled faster, that's not valuable to you, let me know. And if you have that conversation up front, 
nobody says, yeah, make it drag it out. But if you have it at the end, after you hit that car with the hammer, you've got a problem. Maybe it should be more like if I get it done faster, will you pay a premium for that? But I've not done that. But yeah, why not? I mean, because I, I have to say, you know, I'm one of those people. I'm so impatient. I want everything like immediately. And I'm mostly managing the law firm, but I I have a couple clients and nothing irritates me more than having to prod my adversary like why we could resolve this so easily if we just exchange these few things and, you know, these people don't want it to drag on. They don't have a lot of money and they just don't get back to me. It, it drags on and on and on. And I don't want to call out attorneys, but I think a lot of times it's the attorneys. Well, and I mean, and you have to, if you look a little bit deeper as to what's really going on, um, you learn a couple of things. What's really going on, this goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning, uh, you know, an hour or so ago, um, which is these attorneys don't know their AR. They don't know their numbers. They are not earning enough to cover their living expenses. They are not collecting. And so their answer is more cases. Yeah. And so they take on more cases and more cases and more cases of clients that aren't paying them. And they're a lot of times they're not, not getting back to you because they're obstinate or obstreperous. They're not getting back to you because they're overwhelmed and they're just playing triage. Whatever case is on fire is what they're working on and everything else is languishing. And it all goes back to this model of billable hours and not collecting and over it's just if if everybody would be focused on the value delivered we would move we would all do better to move these cases forward we would be able to find more product market fit in the middle you know H&R Block and Jackson Hewitt were not the end of accounting services like I still go to my accountant. I don't go to H&R Block you know, for, for tax planning and, and for all the, the work I need done. I go here. But wasn't it nice for H&R Block and Jackson Hewitt to create something that served a lot more people? And then, of course, Intuit came and, and, and even filled in the bottom uh, with TurboTax and gave a solution that everybody feels that they have access to the advice that they need to be compliant with taxes. Um, it didn't kill great accountants who do great work for their clients, um, but it did create more access, more belief in the system. All right, so I, we haven't really solved this problem yet. <laughs> we've, we've identified a few more problems, but I guess, well, let me, let, me, let me just speak to that. I mean, so, yeah. I, I mean, I think in a sense that I, I think it's not describable because the thing is, it's not a solution. I can't tell you the solution. Yeah. Um, but I can tell you your solution in, you know, a couple hours, maybe about four hours with you, I could tell you your subscription model. 
Um, I have to learn more about your firm. And then the danger is like, why I won't, like I've got, I've had a business model, like a sample business model that I've built. It's on my screen right now. I won't put it up because people uh, that watch this will see it and they'll say, oh, $2,800. That's the number. Or, oh, 80% profit margin, 60% profit margin, 55% profit margin. Oh my God, mine's only 30. I suck. Or, oh yeah, they'll see the numbers and try to apply them to their business. And like, let me just count real quick. I'm going to look at mine. The one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 23 key variables go into figuring out what the product, uh, what the subscription based model should look like for your business. And any one of them really changes it. So like it is the, I believe it's solved or solvable for every specific business. And I think, you know, we could build H and R blocks that are very much, you know, much the same business, build them, build them, build them, build them, build them, or acquire them, acquire them, acquire them and make it work. So, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to go off thinking like we just had this huge hypothetical conversation um, and then we should still have a debate about whether or not uh, subscription-based models are possible to build. They're not possible. I built it. Um, and I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one either. Uh, you know, I don't, don't want to like think I've, I've cracked yeah. this magic nut. I did not pull Excalibur from a stone. Um, I have figured it out. Um, I'm sure others have figured it out. And, but in figuring it out, what I've understood is like, if I just told you a number without going over the 23 variables and testing you on some of those variables and asking you if that's real or true um, or where you got that number, then I could really hurt your business by giving you an answer that is not suited to your business. I think the difficulty I've had is in the sales conversation because people will, unfortunately, people don't initially coming in, don't see the value of paying a monthly flat fee, but I don't have a hard time converting someone who's been a billable model for a while, billable hour model, because they then do see the value Hmm. of having a predictable number every month. Get testimonials from them. Video. So Christina, you used to work with me on an hourly basis. And, you know, I won't go into what we actually build you, um, but you paid an upfront retainer. And then I told you, you know, it would have to be replenished. And we sent you bills by the hour. And after being working with us for four months, five months, whatever the number is, you, I reminded you that we did have a subscription model and you decided to switch to that. Why did you decide to switch to that? Get a couple of those because they will tell you, first of all, they'll tell you what their real pain point was and the real reason why they did it that mattered to them. And you'll be able to use that yourself. Um, when you're having the the sales conversations, you could I'll borrow from a friend and colleague uh, Stephen Fairley, um, who who, who teach, uh, teaches the uh, feel felt found model of having that conversation. Like if they object to the to the um, uh, subscription based, you can then honestly have the conversation and say, "I know, I know how you feel." In fact, I have a lot of clients who felt the same way you did. Um, and describe that. But once they experienced the hourly model and had an opportunity to switch, they found that it was valuable because of these reasons, feel, felt, found. 
And if you have actually a couple of video testimonials to back you up, that sales conversation is going to go much easier. Thank you for that suggestion. Yeah, sorry. That. Uh, again, that's for everybody. It will go better yeah. for everybody. And I'm, I mean, listen, I think this is the right way. I agree. Yeah, I, I agree. There's got to be some other alternative to, I mean, I'm, I've been doing this 16 years and I still can't believe how much a divorce costs. <laughs> so if I'm saying that, you know, I, I know the clients are frustrated. Imagine if you bought, like you, you travel some, right? Imagine yeah. if you bought a Delta ticket out of your, you're in, you're in New Jersey, United, United yeah. ticket <laughs> to Miami or no, let's be better. Let's go to Rome. You bought a ticket to Rome. You're going to go to Italy and have a nice vacation in Italy. And they said, yeah, this flight is going to be $200 an hour. You'd be like, what? <laughs> yeah. So are you, how fast are you going to fly? <laughs> <laughs> so, so when we're sitting on the tarmac, waiting to take off for three hours, you're going to charge me more? I'd be like, yeah, of course we are. When we're sitting on the tarmac, we are paying our pilots more. We're burning fuel. Um, you know, whenever we carry delays, we're paying the, the, the cabin crew. Um, we incur all these extra costs. So of course we're going to charge you more for taking longer. You, you bust a gasket. Yeah. Think about that. Like apply that to what we're doing. Yeah. You'll see that the model is silly. And they don't want to hear that, well, you have overhead and, you know, rent and payroll. and They don't care. That's not their problem. It doesn't help them in any way. Yeah. And that's just human nature to focus on that. So I want to be respectful of your time. You promised me 90 minutes and I don't want to go over that because I know you have other things to do. Um, I have so many questions. We didn't get to all of them. But let's, let's do let's do some lightning round. I'll, I'll okay, give short okay, answers. Yeah. Let's do that. Okay. So in the you've been doing this a while, and you have a very business experience. So what are some of the top most recurring obstacles that you see that law firm business owners have that are holding them back? Not knowing their numbers, being completely unaware of their numbers, being afraid of their numbers, being afraid of numbers. Um, I heard someone say today, um, I think it was David Nagel, uh, said today that um, when something is easy or it's something that we really like to do, we forget that it's not easy for everybody. Um, and I, I, I fall into that sometimes um, because you know, I, I was I was astrophysics major. You know, that was my first thing, right? I, math, numbers, I like that stuff. Um, spreadsheets are sexy. Uh and most lawyers were not physics majors. Most lawyers were humanities majors and went into humanities and got a government degree or a political science degree or a history degree because they didn't want to do any more math. And then, you know, they get into this business and nobody told you in law school that you're starting a small business. You're, you're hanging a shingle. It sounds so much nicer. We're just hanging a shingle. So there, there, there's a phobia about the numbers, just about numbers in general. And then, of course, I think we've all experienced this. Sometimes when things are not going that well, we like to hide from the numbers. Um, you know, you yes. just think, about, think about people like the stock market in March and April went down like almost 35%, close to 40%. Like the number of logins to the brokerage services plummeted. People stopped looking. <laughs> they don't want to see it. I didn't want to look. Yeah. 
but and but so that's that's the big thing is not knowing your numbers and being afraid of your numbers is, is the number one um obstacle so if somebody's not looking at their numbers they have no metrics at all like this is a new concept to them what should they start counting right away what Time. would be the first few things it's so funny like you and i just spent like an hour and a half saying don't build by the hour yeah, no time. But, you mean how much they're actually spending on things? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's our number one expense. You know, typical law firms run between fifty and some close to seventy percent labor. Um, so it's our number one resource uh, that we have to bring to the bear to fix the problems. We don't buy hamburger buns. We don't buy steak. We don't buy plates. Um, we buy. We 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 pay our workers by the hour. Um, whether they are actually hours or salaried, we still pay them. You know, it breaks down. Um, so understanding those inputs is really important. That's the first, if you said, what's the first metric I would start tracking is that. And the other one is accounts receivable because that's a wake up call. Yeah. And I don't have time to do my accounts receivable rant, but oh my God, it's a cancer on your business. Maybe another time. <laughs> well, I, I listened to your podcast episode, uh, with Marco. I don't remember his last name where he talked about how he was only collecting like this might've been a really old one. He was collecting only about 65% of his um, billing. You know what? If that, I probably did my AR accounts receivable rant on that, uh, on that show, but yeah. Yeah. I'll put a link to that so people can listen to that, but I do highly recommend your podcast. It really is Thank a you. good one. It talks about a lot of this stuff in much more detail. Um, I did ask you by email, if you would consider some books yeah. that you highly recommend. So and I think the way you phrased it was like that were really significant or really important. Yes. Um, I read. So the first thing is I'm going to say is like, you got to read. Um, I mean, if you're going to be, listen, you've signed up, if you have your own law firm, you signed up to be a business owner, um, whether you knew it or not, um, you've got to be reading, you've got to be learning all the time. Um, and you got to be reading about business and stuff like that. But like the two seminal books that I go back to over and over and over again. Um, one uh, is The Four Agreements. Um, uh, that book is just a reminder daily about how to show up um, in your life and in your business. Um, and uh, it's been really, I can talk a little bit more about it, but if you would just want to do titles, it's The Four Agreements. Um, and the other one is Mindset by Carol Dweck which talks about um, the difference between fixed and growth mindset. And for me, both of those have been, as many business books have been, excellent for helping me help others in their business, excellent for helping me help me in my business, and really cool for parenting. Um, I, I find them both to be just like, because it's all the same stuff and you know, just ways to, to bring this thinking to your kids um, as well, uh, I find just a huge advantage in both of them. And I saw that you interviewed David Nagel recently. Yeah. That was awesome. I love David. Um, I think anybody who kind of travels in coaching circles eventually comes across David and he talks a lot about mindset and how to think. Yeah. Have you, have you read The Signs of Getting Rich? Oh, absolutely. Don Miguel Ruiz, sorry, is the author of uh, The Four Agreements. Yes. Yeah. yeah, that's a big one. Finds of getting um, rich is Waddles, I think. Is that right? Yes, Wallace Waddles. Because yeah. when you were saying earlier in the conversation, you were talking about how you should, you know, give val just as much value or more value for what you're charging. 
that's something that's talked about. I believe it's in the signs of getting rich, isn't it? Talked it's about there, there, and other places. But yeah, it's it's hugely important. And yeah, that's a that's a great book that I go back to from time to time as well. Are there others? I've got a whole list here in front of me. Oh, I know, right? Anyone who reads a lot is always going to have a long list. Yeah, um, I, I'm just looking through. Rocket Fuel was really has been one I've read in the past year. Um, if if you're having if you're struggling with marketing, I think duct tape marketing. Um, I think a great, it's like a seminal, like if you're really just coming to grips with your law firm as a business, um, you need to read uh, E-Myth Revisited. Um, don't bother with E-Myth Attorney as far as I'm concerned. Really? E-Myth e Revisited um, uh, is, is, is just a great sort of primer on um, what it means to be an entrepreneur. Um, Endless Referrals by, uh, by, by Douglas Berg. Or, uh, not Doug Berg. You said Bob Berg? Bob Berg. Thank you. <laughs> I Berg. knew it was Berg. I never Yeah. Um, Endless Referrals and The Go-Giver um, by Bob Berg. Um, just I awesome. like the Dan Kennedy books. Yeah. That, you know, that's, I think Dan Kennedy's more on my practical side. I, I've read almost yeah. everything. I, the uh, Almost Alchemy, I have not finished yet, but. Uh, I like so the Ruthless series. Yeah. Yeah. Um, our, our management of business and profit, I think it's called. Yep. Um, the, uh, yeah, the one thing by Keller, uh, it was really, really fantastic. Um, Mike McCallowitz books, all of them. Um, is that the, profit, those are the profit first books? Well, profit first toilet paper entrepreneur, the pumpkin plan, um, fix this next is his new one. Clockwork is phenomenal. The one before that. Uh, so yeah, I love his books as well. So I have a lot of reading to catch up on. Yeah. All right. So last question, and then I'll let you go. What are some habits, daily habits that you have that you feel like, um, help you to be successful? I think the number one daily, um, is I want to try to like you couch this as a habit. Um, I hate starting an answer like with do not, but I'm going to. Do not open your email. Do not look at Facebook. Do not, um, unless you're doing for your marketing, um, do not um, open your mail. Do not um, check your phone messages. Do not do any of these things first part of your day. When? When do you do it? <laughs> I, I, I do it after my team meeting at 11.30 is when I, the first time I check email every day um, and do some of these other things. What you should do is, if possible, and this is hard for some people, um, it's hard for me sometimes, but either at the end of the day, if possible, or if necessary, at the beginning of the day, Decide what the five most important things you can get done for if it's the end of the day tomorrow. Tomorrow, here's the five most important things I can get done in order. Number one, most important. Number two, most important. Number three, most important. Four, five. Then when the day begins, get to work on number one. And don't do anything else. Don't talk to anybody. Don't read anything. Don't do anything distracting until don't like don't even make yourself your second cup of coffee until number one is done. 
when number one is done, start on number two, then three. And I've got a bunch of tools like time blocking to help you do this, but also communicating to people around you that this is what you're going to do um, and to leave you alone to get it done. And this, this, by the way, comes out of another great book, um, which was the uh, Secret Habits of the Rock, Secret Rockefeller Habits, um, but it became um, Scaling Up by Vern Hardish. Um, and it's a story about, uh, about um, Charles Schwab and, and some of his success figures, but this is one of them. And the truth is, if you do this, and most days all you get done is number one, you'll be way ahead of everybody else because most people get in their email and yeah. like, and here's what happens. I know we're a little bit over, but the minute you open your email, you are saying stranger who sent me an email. I am giving you the power to decide what's most important today because I'm going to start working on this. I'm going to get distracted by this. I'm going to focus on this. I am going to solve this because that's what we do, right? We're problem solvers. We can't help ourselves. I'm going to get this out of the way. Um, hopefully because God bless you. Got to be one touch email person. Like if you open an email, touch it once, either solve it or delegate it, but get it out of there. Um, and you're saying to them, that's my priority. Thank you for clear clarifying my priorities today. You gave me my priorities instead of at the beginning of the day going like, wow, I've got 28 things that are undone. What's the one that'll move the ball forward the most for me? What's the most important or most on fire or whatever today? And what's the second, the third, the fourth, and the fifth? Like, If you just really operate based on what your decided priorities are and get one or two of them done, that's, you know, one of the great lessons I learned um, at my undergraduate institution was they intentionally, I believe, nobody ever told me that this was true, but I think it was intentionally, it gave us more work than we could possibly do, more reading than we could possibly do, um, and still stay sane. But it taught me that it's okay to not get everything done, as long as you get the most important stuff done. Um, and I think that dovetails with that advice. Um, but so that's, that's one habit I would share. I think that's a great suggestion. I've been struggling with that myself. I've sort of had made a rule that I wasn't going to do that because when I get up in the morning and I start looking at email, it sets the tone for my day because I'll see a few emails like, oh, I have to do that. And then, and then I think, well, I have to do that right now, but yeah. I really don't have to do it right now. But no. that's I mean, how this, my day starts. Yeah. Can you imagine? I mean, we've been trained, but can you imagine like, like I haven't watched Mad Men, so I, I don't know what I'm talking about, but like, I'm like, want to take us back to that era, right? Law firms yeah. in the sixties or the fifties. And can you imagine all the lawyers are working, they're writing, they're giving dictation in the business. And at 9.30, the mailman comes and puts the bag of mail on the reception desk. Can you imagine then that all the lawyers come pouring out of their office going, oh, the mail's here, the mail's here. <laughs> and like ripping it open and looking, oh, look, what, ooh, I can grow my, all right, you know, or, 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 or you know, oh, black money. Like if we get the special chemical, we can make it better or, you know, whatever. And just opening stuff and be like, Oh, this client wants to call. I'm home right now. 
And like all these lawyers are doing that and they're going nuts, ripping the mail open. The receptionist is kind of like, whoa, what's going on? No, that's not what happened. The mail that's got delivered. <laughs> right. But the mail got delivered to a mailroom. And some, you know, and, then, and so what I teach lawyers to do, first of all, is like, I, like, we don't have time for this, but like, not only do I not look at email in the morning, I don't ever look at my inbox ever, 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 ever look at my inbox. Never. That my, makes me, I'm having anxiety just thinking about that, Chris. <laughs> my assistant looks at my inbox and then there's a separate box, a subfolder called Chris Attention. And she puts emails in there that I actually need to see when I look at 1130. So I went from seeing 300 emails a day to five. Did, did any of my emails go in there, Chris? <laughs> if you got a response, they did from me. But or you got a response from her. You you, you yeah. dealt with my assistant. Like we set this whole thing up. You and I barely communicated. Yeah. I, it all went through her. Um, and no disrespect, but you know it's just. Um, no, I, I get it. It's it got it. It got us together. Yes, it was right? sufficient. And without me being in my inbox, so. And but people are like, oh, I couldn't possibly trust my assistant. I uh, tell you, there's personal emails in there and, 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 and yeah. client stuff. And it's like, it used to go down to a mail room where like your, your, your barely functional person drug off the street for sub-minimum wage was like in this windowless room sorting mail and deciding what went where. And then it went up to your assistant who sorted it more. And by the time it got to you, you only got what you needed to see. We could do it then. We can do it now. There's nothing magical about email except we have the inbox on our desk. We just got to get rid of it. Just get rid of it. And, and it will make our lives much better and help us to stick to the priorities we decide for ourselves. Great advice, Chris. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for your time. I really enjoyed this. I got some free coaching and my audience got some coaching. Yeah, and I am- for everybody. I'm interested in the four-hour deal, so maybe you have uh, your assistant send me some information about that. <laughs> you bet, you bet. Want- I'm sure. I'm sure my contact information will be in the show notes too, so people can check it out if they if they need some help. Absolutely. Me- yeah, I was actually going to say, you know, what if somebody's interested in working with you? What's the best way for them to reach you? <sighs> the best way for to reach me is to send an email to Christopher at ProfitFirstLawyers.com. Okay. Sounds good. Thank you again. And thank you guys for listening or watching. Yeah. Thank you all. And thank you, Christina, for setting this up. It's been a real, I mean, I can't believe that 90 minutes has gone by. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. I know. Well, I'm glad you said that because a lot of times when I propose the 90 minutes, people are like, wow, that's a long time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, I do a podcast and my podcast is 30 minutes. Um, we actually record about 40 uh, to get the 30, but, uh, but yeah, uh, I was nervous, but here we are. Well, you were a good sport. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Wake Up Call, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about me, you can find out more on my website, christinaprevitt.com. And be sure to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about everything that I'm reading, learning, listening to, doing, basically everything that I'm obsessed with right now. Follow me on social media. Look up Wake Up Call, the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to be a guest on Wake Up Call or there's someone you'd like to hear on my podcast, please email me at wakeupcallthepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time.